Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The legislature has recessed because of a COVID outbreak and perhaps the only surprise is that it took this long for the virus to hit. I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Mr. Speaker, I move that the House, in concurrence with the Senate, does now recess until the hour of 12 noon, Tuesday, April 6, 2021. Mr. Speaker, I second the motion. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, an outbreak of COVID-19 has prompted the legislature to recess until April 6th. Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press and Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News joined me later in the show to discuss the lead up to this and the potential implications. Also, Alex Adams, administrator for the Idaho Division of Financial Management, gives us a rundown of the billions in federal stimulus dollars Idaho will receive as part of the American Rescue Act. But first, a vaccine update. This week, the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare announced all Idahoans ages 16 and older will be eligible for the vaccine starting April 26th. Idahoans ages 16 to 44 with at least one medical condition will be eligible starting April 12th. But across Idaho, some providers are allowing people to get vaccinated early through so-called no-waste wait lists. In other words, because the vaccines need to be used within a short period of time once a vial is opened, if someone cancels an appointment, the provider has the ability to call up someone who wants the shot ASAP. Availability varies city by city and provider by provider. As of Friday morning, nearly 350,000 Idahoans have received at least one dose of the vaccine. This comes as Idaho's positivity rate has gone up and Eastern Idaho reports the worst current COVID outbreak in the country. On Thursday, Governor Brad Little announced that Idaho would be accepting its share of the $1.9 trillion relief package passed by Congress last week, despite concerns about the cost to the federal government. I have plenty of concerns about the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan Act. At this stage of the pandemic, the massive price tag of the plan is irresponsible. The plan is being mortgaged on our children and grandchildren's future. They will shoulder the burden to pay off this massive debt. All that said, rejecting the funds is not the right thing to do for Idaho. Rejecting the funds would mean California, New York, Illinois, and other big states would get to spend Idahoans' tax dollars. Rejecting the funds would mean Idaho gives up our say on how our allocated share gets spent. That is unacceptable. On Friday, Alex Adams, administrator for the Idaho Division of Financial Management, joined us to outline what the American Rescue Plan Act, or ARPA, means for Idaho. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Can you start by giving us a broad overview of how much money Idaho will be receiving? Sure. Well, uh, President Biden signed the American Rescue Plan Act into uh, law, and it, uh, it's a multifaceted, multi-hundred page uh, bill, so we're still sinking our teeth into it. But in terms of uh, the assistance that would come to Idaho state and local governments, 
it uh, looks like it's going to be just under uh, $3 billion, and that's both for uh, discretionary aid as well as direct programs. Uh, but in addition to that, we're estimating at least $2 billion in direct support to Idahoans and Idaho businesses because in addition to the programs that come through state government, there's stimulus checks to Idahoans, child care uh, uh, credits to Idahoans, there's PPP loans, uh, targeted support for businesses like restaurants, live venues. Uh, so uh, just under $3 billion to the state and uh, uh, at least $2 billion directly to Idahoans. And as you alluded to, not all of these funds are in the same pot. So let's start with the nearly $1.9 billion in discretionary funds for state and local governments. What can those funds be spent on? Sure. So uh, discretionary is a relative uh, term. You can't uh, just use them uh, to plug into the state budget or uh, you have to, to follow the rules of the Treasury. So of what's coming to the state, uh, there's two different discretionary buckets. The, the first is there's just under 1.2 billion uh, for the COVID uh, fiscal recovery fund. Uh, you can use that for uh, direct COVID relief or it's negative economic impacts is the way it's phrased. So if you think of a lot of the ways the state used its CARES Act dollars last year for vaccine distribution, testing, tracing, those of course would continue to be eligible expenses. Uh, but on the negative economic impact front side, that uh, is really speaking to some of the things we did last year for small businesses, where we provided grants to small businesses that then disproportionately impacted. We uh, backfilled the unemployment insurance trust fund to ensure its solvency and keep rates down for individuals. But uh, perhaps most interestingly, uh, this year they allow it to be used for certain types of infrastructure. Uh, the Treasury or the uh, language that Congress passed specifically speaks to being able to use it for water, sewer, and broadband infrastructure. And a growing state like Idaho has substantial needs in water and broadband infrastructure. We see broadband, frankly, as a key to economic development. It's the key to distance education, remote work, telehealth, and so many other aspects of what's becoming everyday life. And uh, I think you're going to see us look uh, pretty closely at uh, using as many of these funds for the infrastructure that's allowed under this. Uh, beyond that, each local government in Idaho will be receiving direct funds, uh, specifically at the county and city level. Uh, counties will receive um, approximately $347 million, and uh, cities are slated uh, to receive uh, about $230 million. Uh, those are funds that are generally going direct uh, to those local governments and they'll have the latitude uh, to use them for the same uh, types of expenses, COVID relief, uh, water, sewer, broadband infrastructure. Now, I, I'm curious about the logic behind allowing some of this money to be used for things like water and sewer infrastructure, but not say transportation. Uh, I, I get the broadband, but why water and sewer? And so uh, you're asking a lot of the same questions that uh, we're asking. Uh, the way somebody described it uh, to me, because, you know, if you if you think of some of the greatest needs that Idaho has that uh, Governor Little's prioritized is transportation infrastructure, roads, bridges, and, and those types of things. And that's not one of the specifically called out infrastructure uh, items. And uh, the way it was described to me is that uh, Congress intends to advance a, a another package, another multi-trillion dollar package, if you can believe it, uh, that would be a little bit more targeted on uh, transportation now. When we look under the hood, it looks like it's focused a little bit more on transit than some green energy things. But uh, uh, since there is a separate package relevant to uh, transportation that's coming in, that uh, sounds like uh, they didn't want to 
satiate the transportation needs with this package and uh, dampen the momentum uh, for uh, for that. Oh, that's that pot of money. And then there's almost a billion in direct aid or direct funds rather for state agencies. What can that money be used for? So the, the direct aid to state agencies are for specific federal programs that pass through state agencies. And the lion's share of that is for uh, public school support. About 440 million of that would be for uh, public schools and uh, that uh, can be used by schools through September of 2023. And uh, in general, it was intended to help schools with safe uh, reopening. Of course, Idaho is a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of our schools uh, being in uh, being reopened and, and uh, things like that. But it uh, certainly should continue to help our schools who have IT needs and uh, other things like that. Uh, beyond uh, the public school support, uh, there's a lot of targeted aid for uh, things like child care uh, grants. Uh, there's uh, money for substance use grants, uh, mental health uh, disorder grants, and uh, things like that, uh, meals on wheels. So there's there's just a lot of targeted programs that would uh, filter through state agencies. The state had to move pretty quickly, as did all states, with the CARES Act funding last year. But what's the timeline for ARPA? So um, on the discretionary funds, it goes through December uh, 2024. Uh, so you have uh, you know just under four years uh, to, to allocate and uh, use those funds. On the direct programs that filter through state agencies, it really varies by program. There's some that have to be used by September of this year. Uh, there's others that uh, go through 2025, and there's others that appear to have uh, no deadline as there's no a deadline specified in the uh, act itself, but uh, it's possible that a deadline could be established in agency guidance as uh, these programs work their way through the federal bureaucracy. Uh, so because of that elongated time frame, we just we see this as fundamentally different than the situation we were staring at with the CARES Act. And the CARES Act, we were at the outset of a pandemic with a lot of unknowns. There were no effective treatments, there was no vaccine. Uh, we were standing up a public health infrastructure that could do testing and tracing. and uh, you had nine months uh, to spend the funds. And in many ways, uh, we were trying to react uh, to what we saw when um, we had to deploy the National Guard. We had to deploy money to facilitate uh, that uh, pretty quickly when we had uh, outbreaks in the veterans' homes. We had to uh, deploy some resources quickly. Uh, we had to deploy resources to our uh, hospitals throughout the state so that they could do surge staffing as nursing capacity became pretty tight. Uh, so we're just in a fundamentally different position with the ability to be a little bit more uh, strategic and proactive in how we use these funds, especially in the area of broadband. Uh, Governor Little did make $50 million available for broadband under the CARES Act, but projects had to be completed by December of last year. So that meant uh, we uh, prioritized the quick shovel-ready projects as opposed to perhaps the most needed projects because the most needed projects might be in rural, unserved or underserved areas that it's going to take multiple years to, to build out uh, that infrastructure. Uh, so this gives us a chance uh, to be a little bit more deliberate, uh, strategic, uh, proactive, and address the most critical needs as opposed to the most uh, shovel-ready needs. We have more with Alex online, including whether ARPA will affect Idaho's plans for tax cuts. Head to the Idaho Reports YouTube channel. You'll find the link at idahoptv.org slash Idaho Reports. 
While the big legislative news of the week was the COVID outbreak and the two-week recess, before Friday, lawmakers worked through a number of bills in an attempt to hit their original goal of adjourning by March 26th. On Wednesday, the House debated a tax relief bill that would lower individual income and corporate tax rates, as well as offer taxpayers a one-time rebate. The wide-ranging debate saw several clashes as Democrats attempted to discuss other tax proposals and possible impacts to other areas of the state budget. Uh, when you don't have the money to invest in education and school districts are floating bonds every single year for operational needs, Mr. not the supplemental. Oh, no, I, and I'm, I'm if, really being tired of being interrupted if because of what I'm saying. Objection. I am absolutely on the subject of the bill because it is the, it is that you have to connect the dots to understand what this bill does. It denies money that could be spent on education so we don't have to have school bonds and levies every single year. And that's the argument that, uh, that the good lady doesn't want to hear. I object. He's impugning motives. <clears throat> what? Do we need to take a time out so we can explain to you the concept of impugning motives? Well, I'm being objected. I'm being, I'm being silenced. So clearly she doesn't want to hear what I'm I have to say. I'm being silenced. You're being uh, asked to stay within the bounds of propriety which I get to judge and you're pushing the line. So go ahead. The, the money associated with this tax relief is denied uh, to, the, to the citizens of this state, which includes funding the vital services of this state and its functions like education. And so, yes, we, we don't collect property tax, but when we don't adequately fund education and take money that we do have available and spend it elsewhere, that pushes that cost onto property tax increases. That's my point. That bill passed on party lines 58 to 12 and now heads to the Senate. On Thursday, the Senate debated a proposal to limit the new growth that local governments can add to their yearly budgets. Supporters argue that adjusting the budget formula will help ease rapidly rising property taxes in some parts of the state, while opponents said the proposal would impact local services. Property taxes are driven by the budgets of the taxing entities. Uh, and the only way that you can reduce your property taxes uh, is if uh, the taxing entities reduce their budgets or if, uh, if we shift taxes from one person to another, if I shift my taxes onto you or you onto me. So we can reduce budgets or we can shift. In my county, um, according to our local experts, this would reduce residential property taxes by $13 per person annually. That's in a county where my property taxes, my little home, where I live by myself, about a thousand square feet, I, my property taxes increased $720 last year. And that's really hard for me. Um, you know, on a nonprofit budget, I know it's really difficult for people on fixed incomes or others in our county. $13 is not, is not gonna do anything for them. Uh, I know my cities in, in my county, I know my county, um, I know my fire district folks, these are all elected officials and they're good conservative folks. Um, having served in local government in a previous life, I know they go through their budgets and scrutinize them for months and hours a day, uh, trying to, to squeeze every last little bit out of that budget. Um, and in doing so, I know my city, my cities and my county still struggle uh, to provide adequate law enforcement uh, to pay for necessary roads and repairs. Uh, even with impact fees. That bill narrowly failed in the Senate 17 to 18.
On Wednesday, the Senate debated funding for higher education institutions, focusing heavily on Boise State University and its so-called social justice programs. After criticizing the programs, many of which focus on racial injustice and disparities, the Joint Budget Committee shifted $409,000 from BSU to Lewis Clark State College to send a message to the university. For some lawmakers, that cut wasn't enough. Others argue that part of having a well-rounded college education is a dialogue on a variety of subjects. I believe that our universities and our higher education system should be there to make job-ready people. If you choose to go to college, you're not going there to learn about diversity and inclusion. You should be going there to learn how to graduate with a job-ready skill so that you can contribute to society, take care of your family, and become the person that you should become on that level. The heart of the liberal arts education, the history of college and university, liberal education, is to create a well-rounded citizenry. And the goal of college, liberal arts college, not a technical college, etc., is to be a well-rounded citizen because then you operate better in it. Liberal arts, science, and social sciences. Those were the things probably most of a college and a liberal education remember. We had to take up a smattering of all those so our minds would be open to things different than us. I think we're in dangerous territory when we start to punish institutions of higher learning with their withholding money because we don't like the content. And I think that borders on censorship. What I heard her say was that in our liberal arts education there needs to be balance and opportunity to see both sides, to hear the debate from both sides. And I support that. What I think the concern I see on the floor today is that is not happening in some of these, these institutions. The bill passed the Senate 27 to 6 and now heads to the House where we expect more debate and a much closer vote. But as lawmakers worked through the agendas, the virus was working its way through the House. On Thursday evening, six House members plus at least one staff member had tested positive for the virus, prompting the legislature to recess until Tuesday, April 6th. On Friday, House Speaker Scott Bedke was asked if he would have done anything differently this session. I will never tell the, my peers what to do with their, uh, with their lives. Uh, I think that everyone learns out there. You know, I think maybe when we come back, we'll, maybe they'll, it'll be different. But I have, I have no regrets on the way we conducted uh, the, you know, the safety protocols to this point. Joining me today to discuss the shutdown is Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press and Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News. Betsy, we just heard Speaker Bedke say there isn't really anything that he would have done differently to uh, stop the spread of COVID, uh, to, to stop this from happening, this legislative session. Um, was this a surprise to you that the legislature had to recess to, to address COVID? I don't think it was a surprise to anyone. Really, the big surprise was that it didn't happen until now that we made it this long. And if 15 infections in the state house, including nine in the past week, are good and what we plan for, then I guess we're on track. But it seems like that might not be such a good outcome. 
We've talked about this a number of times on the program, but just to recap for anyone who hasn't been paying attention, Kevin, there hasn't been much mask use at the legislature. There's been some social distancing in committees, but not on the floor. Uh, it was kind of a, a recipe for a potential disaster. It was that and more. I mean, there was just a really kind of a jarring juxtaposition all session between the practices that were taking place at the state house and the policies that were taking place. I mean, just on Thursday, you had the house debating about whether to pass a bill that would get rid of uh, local government's ability to impose mask mandates. At the same time, you had this outbreak taking place in two legislative committees. I mean, the, the disconnect between where legislators were trying to govern on this pandemic and how they practiced uh, you know, any kind of protocols is, is just kind of, it's kind of mind boggling really. Yeah, so we have had six House members test positive just in the last seven days. And some of them have told you, Betsy, that no, they haven't been wearing masks much, but some of them have. I'm thinking uh, Representative Greg Cheney, Representative James Ruckty. They are people who have taken this pandemic seriously. Is it realistic to think that maybe the spread is even worse than the six that we know about? I think it's very realistic. I think that there are probably quite a number of um, members of the House, possibly Republican members of the House, who are refusing to be tested um, because they have some kind of philosophical issues with things like masking and, and uh, measures to prevent the spread of COVID. Certainly there could be asymptomatic individuals who haven't been tested. I think both Rukti and Cheney were asymptomatic and they only decided to get tested because so many were coming up positive. Um, I, I think that um, there's, there's a lot going on here. I wanna go back to what Kevin said about a disconnect. In some ways it's not a disconnect because the lack of safety precautions and the lack of following health guidelines to prevent the, the spread here is in some ways consistent with what the legislators are trying to accomplish legislatively, which, which is to make sure that there are no requirements. There are no precautions being enforced anywhere because they think there shouldn't be um, basically uh, as a matter of freedom. You know, as the legislature has recessed for six weeks, there are still a, or sorry, two weeks until the sixth, there are still a number of issues on the table that the legislature constitutionally has to address, uh, much less ones that they want to address. And so, Kevin, let, let's talk about what's left on the table for the legislature to do. When they get back on the sixth, I suppose they can do as much or as little as they want to do. I mean, when you talk about constitutional mandates, you've got to pass a budget. And there are a lot of big budget bills that still have to be passed. Neither House has taken up the K-12 budget. The House has not taken up the higher education budget. And that could be a very sticky debate when that comes. You have to pass the budget bills. You don't have to do tax relief, although the governor and legislative leadership really wants to do tax relief. You, you don't have to do a transportation package, although that is a high priority. What it's, what's going to be interesting to see when the legislature gets back on April 6th is what issues make the cut as things that uh, this legislature is going to take up before adjournment and what doesn't. Uh, I'm thinking about things like all-day kindergarten. Uh, House Speaker Scott Bitt, he said today that that is a bill that he wants to see moved on and he does expect the House Education Committee to take it up right away. Sex education in the schools does that 
make the cut over on the Senate Education Committee. It was poised for a hearing in committee on Monday, but obviously that's not happening. You know, what do legislators push for in this interim time? What do they lock for behind the scenes to get on the agenda? And what issues kind of fall by the wayside? What issues do supporters say, well, we'll just fight that fight next year? And really on the budget bills, how hard do House conservatives fight on budgets or do some of them say, well, we don't have the votes anyway, and this is gonna pass and let's just adjourn for the session. I, I find that a little bit hard to believe. I think that the hardline conservatives are gonna come back and they're gonna fight over budgets because that's what they've been doing all session. The majority of the budgets have been set by the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee, pretty much all the major budgets, but there are still some that they have work to do on as well. And that's a fairly lengthy process to get those out of the Joint Committee and over to both houses. Those include the Attorney General's budget, which was killed in the House, the Lieutenant Governor's budget, which was pulled back, various other appropriations that are, are key. Um, and and there's, you know, there's still a road ahead of the legislature here. I think it was a week or two ago, Speaker Begke said that the issues now are kind of more like February than March. So I wonder what they'll be like in April. Um, if, if things are taking that long to mature, unless uh, they decide what Kevin said, that they're just gonna let some things go, good heavens, we could be here in June. Don't say that, Betsy. <laughs> 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 Betsy, don't jinx us. I, I am just happy that the legislature decided to recess over my kids' spring break. I think if there's a silver lining here, it's that I get a week off, well, not off, but not following the legislature with my kid, but I don't think I can handle a June legislative session. <laughs> uh, let's talk a little bit about um, how th those budgets that we are expecting to be close. And I'm thinking, of course, the K-12 budget, uh, definitely the higher ed budget, and then the resurrection of that early childhood education um, grant. Uh, Kevin, you said that it might change the conversation on those. There's gonna be some lobbying behind the scenes. Betsy, do you think that we're gonna continue to see the House conservatives protest? Absolutely, but on that early education grant, the new version has come out from JFAC. It has considerably more intent language and strings around it, designed specifically to satisfy um, and to alleviate the concerns of the House conservatives. And that bill was killed by only two votes, and at least two members have already said that they're gonna change from no to yes. So I think that one certainly got a shot. I think it really does have a shot, because when you think about what happened on March 2nd, when you, when you strip away all the procedural maneuverings, the House was split evenly down the middle on the bill. And if, as Betsy says, and we've kind of heard the same thing, that there are, you know, at least one or two lawmakers that have changed their opinion and are now going to support it, that's enough to get it passed. And I would imagine if it passes the House, it'll probably have a pretty good shot at passing the Senate. Boy, it's remarkable this session, the difference between the Senate's approach to appropriation bills and the House. And appropriation bills, of course, are the one thing that the legislature absolutely has to do by the Constitution. They've got to pass them. Almost everyone has been a battleground in the House. And in the Senate, it's been a much quieter, much calmer, and generally overwhelmingly positive vote on the vast majority of them. 
And that's typically the case, although I can think of a few exceptions. There was one year with the K-12 budget that the Senate voted it down after the House had passed it. But generally, uh, the, the House is a lot more critical of these budgets than the Senate is. Um, you also see it on the policy end. I mean, this week in the Senate Education Committee on a daily basis, they either voted down House passed education bills that were controversial or they agreed to strip down another uh, House passed bill that was controversial. Well, and that's about all the time we have this week. Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press, Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News, thank you so much for joining us. And I think I speak on behalf of all of us that we hope everyone who has tested positive at the State House this week gets better soon and makes a full recovery. Thanks so much for joining us this week. We have much more online on the Idaho Reports website, idahoptv.org slash Idaho Reports. We'll see you next week. presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.